0: Today on Abounding Grace. Salvation is a miracle in our lives, which why it doesn't make any sense for you to go back and live the way you used to before you got saved. It doesn't make any sense for you to go back and have one foot in the world and one foot in the church and you're so unpredictable and you're so untrust. We never know. It's not from the Lord for you to go backwards into that life of sin you've been delivered. And so what does John say? Hey, I'm testifying to you. And my testimony is true. Because he who knows it's telling the truth. This
1: is a messing grave. This is a failing love. That you would take my place. Welcome again to Abounding Grace, online at aboundinggraceradio.com. Join us as we study the Bible and learn of God's abounding grace. Pastor Ed Taylor is nearing the finish line in his verse-by-verse study of John. And as we turn to the end of chapter 19, Jesus is dying on the cross for the sins of mankind. Yes, he went through an excruciating death as a sacrifice in exchange for you and me. Let's take some time now to remember what he endured so that we could be saved. Take your Bibles, open them
0: to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, as we finish the chapter today. A Bible study that I simply entitled, Jesus Dies for the Sins of the World. And we are in that section where Jesus is literally hanging on a rugged, ragged Roman cross. And it's unfortunate because of jewelry and decorations and paintings, and even the most common picture of the cross, the crucifix, it's, because, it's unfortunate because of them that we've learned some things about the cross that really aren't true. They really aren't true, especially the crucifix. Many people have been misled by the crucifix. And while it is true that Jesus Christ hung on a cross— it's not true, well, as in the common crucifix, the body of the man that's hanging there is easily recognizable. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the man, Christ Jesus, God in human flesh, when he hung on the cross, he was unrecognizable, that, that he was so bloodied and so beaten and so disfigured that unless you knew him, you wouldn't recognize him. Another misconception about the cross is this is nice and neat. It's all perfectly smooth and nice and neat. No, the Roman cross was most likely a log or a shaved-off splintered pieces of wood that would make a T that would also drive into the body when somebody would hang on there. It It wasn't some clean, nice, pretty cross. Neither is the cross nice, clean, or pretty. It was an instrument of torture. It was an instrument to prolong death and make it hard for a person. It wasn't smooth. It was rough and difficult. Now, what I'm saying here is not to speak down on jewelry and to have a memory of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's merely to point out to you that some of the things that we remember in our minds aren't biblically accurate, and we need to be very careful there. For example, we were also, we were also taught... Those of you that were raised in the church, you sung a hymn, and it began something like this, on a hill far away. Well, that's actually not how people were crucified. People were not crucified on a hill. Now, you you guys were like saying, please don't sing that whole song, yet. I know. (laughs) I'm fine with that. People were crucified along the road, lined up. They weren't just grouped in threes, Rome would take men and they would line them up in every single Roman province. They would have them along the streets, along the roads, so that if you were taking your children to market and you were holding your children by the hand, you would take your children within eyesight, within earshot of those being crucified, both those that were still alive and moaning in pain and agony on the cross and those that were dead. It was a very horrific that was an offense to the senses. It wasn't as clean as we might think it is today. And that's where Jesus is here in John 19. He's been manipulated. The Roman government has been manipulated by the religious leaders of the day, unwilling to kill Jesus themselves with the attempt to keep their hands clean. They convinced Pilate to do it himself. And he was easily manipulated because of his political leanings and trying to save himself. And it's just a complete mess. The government's involved. The religious leaders are involved. But more importantly, that's from the human perspective, but more importantly, God is involved. Because Jesus, the Bible says, was crucified from the foundations of the earth. This was no surprise to God. And nothing is wasted by God. Let's pick up where we left off, would you, in verse 28 of John chapter 19, after this. Whenever you see a phrase like that, either after this or therefore, you want to go back and, and remember after what. Well, after our study last time where Jesus there in agony hanging on the cross is in great love taking care of his mom and handing her off to the care of John. After that, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The thirst of Jesus reminds us that he is fully human, Because human beings thirst. It's natural. God in human flesh is hanging on the cross thirsty. And they attempt to give him some sour wine here. Now in Matthew chapter 27, they tried to give him sour wine mixed with gall. Jesus tasted it and refused it. Why? Because he would not take any anesthetic to lessen the pain. Jesus took the full brunt of our sinful pain upon himself on the cross. Now the sour wine, just a little bit on his lips with a hyssop branch, was there to quench some of his thirst, but never really satisfy. And he cries out there, It is finished. You guys that like to write in your Bibles, you might want to circle that. It's the Greek word, tetelestai. You want to remember that word. Let me spell it for you. T-E-T-E-L-E-S-T-A-I. Tetelestai. And it does mean, it's a good translation, complete or finished. It's actually from the same Greek word that you see back in verse 28, the word accomplished. The word accomplished is a different Greek word than the one used in verse 30, but it comes from the same root. It means completed. In the ancient Greek culture, they would use this word to describe servants completing a task. If you gave a task to your servant and they finished it, they would come back and say, tetelestai, It's done. It's the same word that artists would use when they completed a sculpture finally. They would stamp it, tetelestai. It's finished. It's complete. Merchants would do the same thing. When a transaction was completed between you and the merchant, they would give you something that said, like a receipt, like a modern-day receipt, they would say, tetelestai. And that meant to be paid in full. And here Jesus is on the cross, and one of the last seven things that he says is... It is finished, to die. Now, before I explain that in more depth, let me give you the seven things Jesus says on the cross. There are seven statements as you compare the gospels that Jesus says while he's hanging there on the cross. Number one, he says, Father, forgive them. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Second thing he says is, today you will be with me in paradise to the saved thief. Next to him, Luke twenty-three, forty-three. Thirdly, as we learned last time, woman, behold your son, John 19, verse 26. Fourthly, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, verse 46. Then he says in John nineteen, twenty-eight, I thirst. Then in verse 30, it is finished. And finally, number seven, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And as he says in verse 30, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. A reminder of his deity that Jesus is in full control over this. He didn't go to the cross by accident or merely by manipulation. Those were the tools that God used to accomplish his will. Even as you see in your own life the things that are very discomforting and very difficult and hard to understand you wonder what could possibly be the end result of this hardship, this crisis, this sorrow, this sadness. Well, while in the human realm, we experience much pain and much stress and much difficulty, God in the spiritual realm is working all things together for the good for those that love him and those that are called according to his purpose. He's working them together. And that's where faith is so necessary, isn't it? Because if we walk by sight, we're going to be very discouraged by the circumstances of life. I mean, for some, it's been difficulties to the left, difficulties to the right. If you go backwards, there's problems. You're walking into problems, and you're wondering, what is going on, Lord? That's a good prayer to pray. But when you pray that prayer, God is activating and bringing out of you faith and trust to trust Him in the things that you don't see that God really is going to work things out for the good. He is going to take these difficulties and use them for his purposes, his purposes. A lot's going on in this declaration of it is finished. You know, as Jesus dies here, there's supernatural activity happening. The first thing that we know that's happening is that the veil, the thick veil that stood before the Holy of Holies and everyone else from entering in is being torn from the top to the bottom. Why? Because now God, through the death of Jesus Christ, is saying, access to me is now available. Come in through the death of Jesus on the cross. Another thing that's happening at this time is there's a massive earthquake going on. The veil reminds us that he conquers sin. The earthquake reminds us that the law is fulfilled. The resurrections, the third thing that's happening is graves are opening up. And people that were once dead, like Lazarus, are coming alive. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy scene that's going on. And the resurrections prove that Jesus has conquered sin and death. Let me, let me show you some depth of this in Colossians chapter 13. Would you turn over there with me? Colossians chapter 13. Notice with me some of the depth that's happening right here at the death of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse—well, pick up with me in verse 13. Paul is writing to the believers in the city of Colossae, and he says, And you, being dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you—what's your next word in your Bible? Having forgiven you all trespasses. Salvation is a whole package— Your past is forgiven, your present is forgiven, and your future is secured by faith, forgiving you all your trespasses. Notice verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Notice verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In what? His death on the cross. Verse 16. Therefore, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance, the substance of your faith, the substance of your purpose, the substance of your forgiveness is of Christ. And the context is Jesus Christ, death on this Roman cross. Now notice verse 31 back in John 19. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first. And of the other who was crucified with him. But when they had come to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Verse 35. And he who is seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken." And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. The Sabbath was a high and holy day. And for the Jews, the bodies must be removed from the cross. And having dead bodies hanging in the public area that was so close to the city, in their mind would bring defilement. So they asked for them to be, their legs to be broken and to be taken down. And so each of the ones that were near Jesus in this crucifixion, their legs were broken. But when they came to Jesus... They noticed that he was already dead, and instead of breaking his legs, what did they do? But they took and speared his side, and out of his side came blood and water. Now, why would, why would they break legs of someone that is crucified? How would that hasten death? Well, I want to get into your mind how they would put a man on the cross. They would put his feet on top of each other and drive the stake through both of those feet. And he would be on sort of a ledge with his arms hung out like this. And as he he would be beaten and bloodied already because they would scourge him beforehand, he would hang and the common death of crucifixion was suffocation, an inability to breathe, and water filling in the lungs. And what would happen with the person being crucified, which would naturally happen when their legs were up, they would try to get as much strength as they possibly could to get just a little bit up, take a couple breaths, and come back down. And knowing human nature, that's how crucifixion was designed, to prolong death. Few people would just take it. They would push up and come down and push up and come down. By breaking the legs... They would have no ability to push up anymore, and death was imminent. They would just hang and suffocate from the fluid collecting in their lungs. But by the time they come to Jesus, there was no need to break his legs because he was already dead. Instead, they pierced him. Now, remember last time in our study, we were introduced to a man by the name of Simeon? Simeon. Simeon was told and given a promise that he wouldn't die until he saw Messiah. There was Joseph and Mary bringing Jesus into the temple. It was declared that this was Messiah, and he began to rejoice, and he had a conversation and a prophecy. He prophesied, speaking forth the word of God directly to Mary. And remember what he told her? He told her that this son of yours is going to lead to the rising and fall of many, and a sword will go right through your heart symbolically now some commentators suggest and we don't know for sure because there's no way to know that gospel record doesn't give to us but some commentators suggest that in that piercing of her heart happened at the same time of the piercing of her son's side that that was the worst time for her in this whole environment watching her son die such a horrific death we don't know for sure but we do know this The scene around the cross is not a clean scene. It's not an antiseptic scene. It's not even anything that we could possibly grasp and paint or make a piece of jewelry or have some kind of decoration. The cross is a bloody scene. It is a horrific, torturous scene filled with pain and sorrow and desperation. Supernaturally, things are happening all over. There was even darkness while Jesus hung on the cross deep darkness, and they didn't break his legs because according to verse 33, he was already dead, which confirms verse 30 that he gave up his spirit. John's trying to show us and remind us that Jesus died a real, physical, human death as a sacrifice in exchange for you and me. To prove it, it's mentioned that blood and water came out, which some suggest— that the piercing went right into the heart and Jesus dies of a broken heart. Or he is dying because of a broken heart as the pierce comes into his side. And then Paul, I mean, John says in verse 35, he says, "'And he who is seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe.'" I think many of us have been in this place before because John's writing it down. He's giving you the testimony. He says, you got to believe it because I'm writing it down for you. You got to believe me because I was there. And I'm sure there are times in your life when you're sharing with folks and you're trying to describe to them what God has done in your life. You're trying to describe to them who you used to be and who you are now. You're trying to describe to them what kind of, how God used a certain Bible study or a certain song in your life. And there's great resistance. People don't believe you. They don't want to believe you. And then you come back with something. No, no, I'm telling this right now. I'm telling you because it's true. I was there. I experienced it. God changed my life. One of the greatest tools in your toolbox in serving and loving others is your testimony. The testimony of an eyewitness, seeing your mom saved or your dad saved, seeing God rescue your child or bring a prodigal home, your own personal testimony of who you were there. You know, when I'm sharing my various parts of my testimony, I get deeper into some things. People often will say, I don't believe that. I don't see that in you. And I'm like, bro, believe me, I was there. This is my life. And if I was so bad that I don't remember, Marie is always there to remind me. She was there. There are always those that say, yeah, I remember. The radical change in your life is nothing short of a miracle. You're right. Salvation is a miracle in our lives. Which why it doesn't make any sense for you to go back and live the way you used to before you got saved. It doesn't make any sense for you to go back and have one foot in the world and one foot in the church and you're so unpredictable and you're so untrust. We never know. It's not from the Lord for you to go backwards into that life of sin. You've been delivered. And so what does John say? Hey, I'm testifying to you and my testimony is true because he who knows it's telling the truth. You know, because people always say, oh, that's just a bunch, the Bible's a bunch of fairy tales, you know, a bunch of faribos. Listen, fairy tales don't save people, but God does. His word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I've never, never met a person saved by a fairy tale, but I've met thousands of people saved by God through his son, Jesus Christ. These are no
1: myths and no fairy tales, but the truth of God's word. You're listening to Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace, and Ed, I think it's quite fitting that we're studying the death and resurrection of Christ this week in these days leading up to Christmas. After all, Jesus came with a purpose, and that was to die for the sins of the world, right? You're right, Larry. Jesus came with
0: a singular purpose, and that was to offer himself as the eternal sacrifice of the new covenant to forgive your sins and mine by faith. It's summed up, isn't it? And we can thank Nicodemus for coming to Jesus with questions, because in answer to Nicodemus' questions, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And that is the purpose of Jesus. He came to give life, and that more abundantly. I know it's hard to think that Jesus, that little baby, was born to die, but indeed he was. And he sets the pattern for us to follow in his footsteps that we too might be born to die. Oh, of course, we're not going to be giving our life up uh, for the sins of others, but we are going to live in a self-sacrificial way day by day until we go home to be with the Lord, to serve others, to, to give of ourselves in love and care and concern and sacrifice for others. I'm so grateful that we are talking about the birth the life the death and the resurrection of Jesus around this time because it encourages me and and I don't know about you but I and and I'm sure I know I know something about you but I'm telling you this I am grateful that God saved my soul and he rescued me from the life that I was living in rebellion to him I hope you are too God bless you
1: guys thanks again pastor ed To hear today's study again, just visit our website, AboundingGraceRadio.com. There you'll find our podcast, Pastor Ed's blog, a place to contact us, and even donate to the ministry as the Lord leads. Again, that's AboundingGraceRadio.com. Another way to grow on the go is to download our free app. Do a search for Ed Taylor. And listen to Pastor Ed when it's most convenient. And this month, we've picked out a book we think you'll enjoy. It would even make a great gift or a stocking stuffer. It's The Case for Christmas by Lee Strobel. Sort of like a journalist, Lee Strobel investigates the identity of the child in the manger, focusing on the hows and whys of Christmas. It'll serve to reaffirm your faith and help seekers pursue solid answers about the first coming of Christ. We'll send it your way when you support Abounding Grace. with a gift of $25 or more. Please remember this radio ministry is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you. And we'd appreciate it if you'd remember us in your year-end giving to the Lord. To request The Case for Christmas, please call toll-free 877-30-GRACE or visit us online at calvaryco.store. Again, that's calvaryco.store. Glad you've taken time out for our study in the Gospel of John. We'll pick up where we left off next time we get together on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. This is amazing grace.